Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 158, Moon Deliveries. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. I hope you tuned into last week's episode on the Lunar Gateway, where we talked with Dan Hartman and Laura Kearney. This is a critical element of what makes up NASA's Artemis program, returning a sustainable human presence to the moon. And we're doing so with international and commercial partners. Now, before we get the boots of the first woman and next man on the moon, American commercial partners will be sending payloads to the surface on commercially built and operated landers through an initiative called Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLIPS for short. Landers, science and technology payloads, rockets, and landing sites have already been identified in this exciting new chapter of lunar exploration. So to tell us more about the history, purpose, and progress thus far for this effort is Chris Colbert and Dr. Camille Elaine, project manager and deputy project manager respectively for CLIPS. So here we go. Commercial landers and NASA science coming soon to the surface of the moon with Chris Colbert and Camille Elaine. Enjoy. Chris and Camille, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Gary, for having me. Wonderful. I am very excited to talk about CLIPS and very interested to see what this is all about. I'll be honest, uh, I had to do a lot of research from the ground up on this one, um, just understanding what this is. And I'm so glad to have you both on, the people that are actually leading this effort. It's very, very exciting. Let's take a step back first and understand who is leading this. Chris, I want to start with you. Talk about yourself and your background. What got you to this position um, leading the CLIPS effort? Uh, sure. Okay. So I've been around JSC for a long time now. Um, uh, I actually was uh, the chief technologist, the center chief technologist, when uh, the center needed some help running the evaluation board that was setting CLIPS up. And I was having so much fun, I gave up the chief technologist job and stayed in the role. <laughs> How about that? You have an extensive career with NASA um, supporting exploration and human spaceflight. Is that right? Yes, I've been. I've, I've done almost everything you can do in the epicenter in many ways. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, Camille, you're you're sort of the same. You also have a long career here at NASA. I do. Mine is going on twenty. I think twenty five years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, mine started at Kennedy Space Center on working on the space shuttle as a flight systems test engineer. I've went through headquarters in the early Constellation days and then came to JSC 13 years ago as the Orion Crew Module Systems Engineer. Since then, I have served in the International Space Station Program as the Associate Program Scientist. I spent a year at headquarters actually working in the Science Mission Directorate, which was really new for me because up to that point, I had only done human spaceflight. And so that was a great experience and really led me to the position I'm in now as the deputy manager for the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, which is, um, uh, yeah, and we'll talk about it. But, but my experience at headquarters 
at SMB really led me to this this program, which has been really, really exciting. Wonderful, Camille. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with you because you, you already alluded to it. Commercial lunar payload services. What is this, Camille? So commercial lunar payload services is one of NASA's most innovative public-private partnerships to date. Um, it is our we will be leading uh, lunar exploration efforts for the agency as early as the fall of 2021, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But it's really a delivery service that we are buying from our commercial partners, um, something akin to FedEx or DHL to the moon, where you buy, we have science instruments that we want transported to the lunar surface, and we are going to pay commercial uh, companies to, do the, to provide that delivery service for us. Us being NASA. Interesting. So, yeah, instead of us building these landers, we are asking commercial companies to build them for us. And then it's what it sounds like is that we have a lot of payloads or science and technology uh, instruments and, and, and demonstrations that we want to put on these landers. Is that right? That's correct. And I would, I would correct one thing. Okay. They are not building the landers for us. They're actually building their landers. These are their transportation hmm. um, vehicles, and we are just paying for the ride for our instruments to the surface. So we don't, we would not own the landers. The commercial entity owns the landers, um, but they'll transport our instruments for us. Interesting. Now, Chris, you mentioned that you were there when Clips. The idea for Clips was first coming about. Tell me about the genesis of of this idea of this project. Sure. The the origination goes back into the 2017, you know, 2018 timeframe, um, as the agency was having success with commercial cargo and commercial crew. There was some discussion about how we apply some of what we were learning there to what was going to become the Artemis program and the ideas of going to the moon. So the agency had already started work with some of the um, Google X Prize competitors, uh, private companies who were competing for Google X money to go to the moon. We were providing some technical support through a program called Catalyst. Uh, but the obvious next step would have been to take uh, the development a little further down the road, give the vendors an opportunity to do what uh, they do best while letting NASA focus primarily on the science and the, the technology we cared about. So the strategy was built out of headquarters. The science mission directorate uh, was asked to lead the program. They put together a source evaluation process that I led. Um, the, the procurement was actually led out of NASA Goddard. And we put nine companies on contract. Putting them on the contract didn't actually win them any delivery service awards. All it did was said, these are the companies we believe are capable of competing for task order awards. So we spent most of the year 2018 going through the evaluation process and getting ready for the master contract, and then we awarded that near the end of 2018. And going into 2019 and beyond, uh, we start working towards task orders. Interesting. Now, now, how does this this framework of of adding all of these commercial companies to a contract in, in such a way that you described? How does that compare to how NASA used to do business when it comes to these? 
different either exploration, different exploration efforts or, or other efforts. Is this is this sort of similar to what we've seen in the past, or is this a whole new thing? Um, this is pretty new, or at least the approach NASA is taking is fairly new. Um, we're relying entirely upon the vendors' processes and vendors' hardware. As Camille noted, we don't even we don't we not only don't own the landers, we don't even evaluate the landers. Uh, they get to make their own decision about how to get to the moon. Hmm. They're responsible for contracting with the launch service providers. Um, the, the 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 simple model that we talked about most frequently is think of FedEx to the moon. We, we're going to hand them a package, and they call us when it gets to the moon. <laughs> I love that. Now, um, you, we're talking about the moon here, and you already mentioned this, this program called Artemis. Can you describe what Artemis is and then how CLIPS folds into that? So Artemis is our human exploration of the moon, hmm. right? So it's sending the first woman and the next man to the moon, but in a different way than we did it back in the, in the Apollo era, right? We, in the Apollo era, we went unilaterally as a country to the, to the moon. This time, we are bringing commercial partners and international countries. We're working with these entities to go to the moon and be there in a sustainable way, exploring the moon so that it is used as a platform for us to eventually send humans to Mars. Interesting. Now... Camille, you already mentioned when it comes to CLIPS, um, these landers are owned, they are the companies. They, they are, they're not NASA's. The, the company will own and operate this lander. Why are we doing it this way? Why, why do we need a commercial service rather than just making something ourselves? Well, I think what we have found um, working with our commercial partners in the last few years is that, one, they are very agile and pretty nimble, much more than the government is. Um, and they come up with more innovative solutions that sometimes we don't have as a government entity the bandwidth to explore as much. And so commercial companies, because they are driven by, um, you know, funding, uh, limited funding in this case, firm fixed price funding, they are more uh, innovative in terms of their solutions uh, to the problems we have. And so they come up, and having a lot more companies allows us, the government, to have um, a better price point for these services. So competing them across the commercial uh, companies really allows a more competitive price for the government and more innovative solutions. So that's why commercial. So, Chris, um, there's a lot of science and technology that we want to get to the moon through CLIPS, but I want to kind of understand why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing it through this project to have commercial companies design landers rather than just kind of fold it into human missions and, you know, have humans, whenever they're walking on the surface, go around the surface of the moon and throw around these different instruments? Why, why do it this way? Well, well, we'll end up doing both, right? Oh. Um, but the the human systems will take a little longer to get there. We're hoping to be there by 2024. Um, but there is things we'd like to know about the moon before we get humans there. 
Um, and we can utilize both much smaller landers and hopefully, as Camille noted, a more nimble, more agile approach to getting things to the moon early. And then even after humans get to the moon, there'll be a much there'll be a wide range of things we'd like to do on the moon that can't all be done at the locations where the humans are. So we'll get more diverse science and science from different parts of the moon if we have the ability to take instruments in a lot of different locations. And as Camille noted, the, the cost is significantly lower than a traditional NASA mission. So we get more bang for the buck, if you will, by taking advantage of what the commercial lenders bring to the table. It won't replace what the human systems do. They're still critical for human activities. Um, but the opportunity for demonstrations before the humans get there and the ability to land a wide variety of things in a lot of different locations can be done much more cheaply if we partner with industry. So, Camille, it can sounds I like – go ahead. Can yeah. I add to what Chris said, too? Of course. Uh, one, Artemis is about human exploration. It's about humans being able to live on an extraterrestrial uh, planetary surface, which we haven't done in over, really, 50 years, right? Um, but CLIPS allows the science community – Right, the international science community, researchers, scientists, astrophysicists, geologists, to be able to send instruments that can help them um, answer some some questions that they still have, not just about the moon, but there's so much the moon teaches us about the evolution of our solar system, and thus the evolution of our home planet. And so there, there are a lot of unanswered questions within the science community. And CLIPS, with um, our ability to send instruments on behalf of the scientists, allow them to answer those questions. Hmm. So that's, that's an important mission there, Camille. Can you tell me what the expectations are for the companies that are building these landers um, to get that science, that important stuff, to the surface of the moon. What is, what is it exactly that we want these commercial companies to do? So we want them, so I'll back up a little bit. Okay. We expect them to procure every piece of hardware they need to be able to facilitate the transportation of our instruments, right? So they have to develop their lander um, they have to procure their launch vehicle and any ancillary kind of hardware that they will need to in, in order to accomplish this mission. But we are really, in essence, building a marketplace on the moon, right? And so this, this commercial model facilitates, it really enables um, an economy to be built on the moon where commercial companies can build up their capability, and NASA eventually won't be the, uh, the only customer that they are servicing. They would have the ability to service many other customers outside of the U.S. government, other international countries or commercial entities or universities that want to independently send instruments to the surface. They will be able to um, facilitate that because we have enabled them to develop these capabilities. Interesting. So I, I understand, like, a lot of these early landers, there's a lot of NASA payloads in there. I think there's a few European Space Agency 
um, payloads as well. But from what I'm hearing, this can scale to a period where instead of NASA being the customer for these landers, they can expand. This is, um, I guess, the idea here is sustainability. That's correct. What we're looking for, NASA would like to be what we call the marginal customer, where we're just one of many people sending packages to the moon so that we only pay a fraction of the infrastructure cost. The, the FedEx model actually is a very good example. You don't have to buy a truck every time you want to put your package on a FedEx delivery. Um, that cost is amortized across thousands of payloads. We're not there with Moon today, but we're hoping that if we help get this started, it'll it'll end up that way. And NASA will have the option of being able to take a package. Right now, it's a you know two year cycle to get ready to take something to the Moon. We'd like to reach the point where we can say, hey, we got a package we like on the Moon. You know, next week, who can take it tomorrow? <laughs> uh, that, that's where we want to get to. Express delivery. How about that? That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, Chris, you, you talked about being intimately involved in, in building the, the CLIPS effort up. Tell me about how it works. You mentioned, you mentioned something called the task order. Um, you, meant you were throwing around contracts. What, what exactly is the framework here? How does this work? Sure. So in many ways, CLIPS more than anything, the CLIPS project more than anything is a contracting vehicle. What we did was we selected originally nine companies, then we added five more who said they were ready. We put them onto the master contract. They have to go through an evaluation process to demonstrate they have the ability to go to the moon and understand what a lunar mission would look like. Then once we've put them on the master contract, they compete with each other. Only the people that are on the contract get to bid on a task order. So we define our requirements. We say, here's a series of instruments we want taken to this part of the moon. We put out a task order, which is a written definition of our requirements. We let the vendors submit proposals, and then we review all those proposals and pick whoever had the best combination of price and capability to meet our requirements. That's called a task order. Okay. So that's uh, that framework. Now you did that for, I guess let's go into to what we have so far, um, the, the progress so far of, of what we have asked for, for some of these, um, I guess, task orders or maybe contract, or t- yeah, it is task orders, that have been awarded. Um, what, what was it that we wrote down? What did we say, hey, this is what we want, this is where, this is where we want to go? So, sure, okay. For the, for, the, for the first one, it was a little different than actually how we've done subsequent. So the first task order we call task order two, we awarded two um, contracts to two companies that will be flying as early as fall of 2021 next year, which is pretty incredible um, in terms of the time frame. But what we did was we wanted to jumpstart the process, jumpstart the economy. So we had a buffet of instruments <laughs> on the shelf, NASA instruments on the shelf, and we said, we are going to offer you this buffet of instruments because you are just starting out. And remember, Gary, no one has ever done, no commercial entity has ever done this before. So we're really blazing a trail, right? And so we said, we have this buffet of instruments. You get to select which instruments work best with the lander you are developing or you are capable of developing. So out of those 14 instruments, um, to two of the company, the two that we awarded selected 
uh, different ones. One selected, actually, um, I think 10 will be flying on one, Astrobotic, that got an $80 million award. And Intuitive Machine will be flying five, and they got a $77 million award. So that first uh, task order delivery was just jump-starting the economy. Since then, we've really focused on the science objectives, right? So the science community, along with uh, the Science Mission Directorate, did a call for specific science payloads, and the science payloads were selected based on the objectives that the scientists want to meet on the moon, what they want to study, what they want to research. I talked about the research questions they want to answer. So those instruments were selected in order to start answering those questions. And then that package of instruments will give on, will put on the task order. And so the companies needed to now show how they were going to meet the requirements of those instruments. Um, and so since then, we have selected uh, Task Order 19C, Mastin Space Systems, a company in California, got an award for about $76 million, $77 million. They will be the first ones going to the South Pole with our in science instruments. And then we just selected Astrobotic again, which was one of the companies that got the first award. They got their second award to transport the Viper rover to the South Pole in 2023. So to date, really in the, in the last year and a half, we've been able to award four contracts um, to jumpstart this lunar exploration science program. What amazing progress. That's incredible. That's, uh, that, we got a series of landers coming up in the very near future and I can't believe the turnaround for Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines going going fall of next year. That's very ambitious and, and very cool. So, so Chris, where where are they going? I guess what what is uh, what is where are they going to be going, and what what exactly is the reason for them going to these places? Well, for the the first two awards, we let them pick where they wanted to go. Uh, oh. As Camille noted, we're, we're we're being we're trying very hard to accommodate what the commercial capability vendors are capable of doing. So rather than telling them where we wanted to go, we said, you decide which payloads fit in your lander and you tell us where you're capable of going. So Astrobotic is going to Lacus Mortis, uh, which is a large crater on the near side of the moon. And it's in the mid-latitudes. It's um, an area we haven't sent humans, but it has some very interesting geology features. And Intuitive Machines is going to Oceanus Procellia, um, which is a dark spot we can see on the moon. Both of those are areas that are mid-latitudes, um, relatively straightforward to get to. So for the first demonstration of their capabilities, they're picking something that makes a lot of sense for what they want to do. As Camille noted, for the next two task orders, we're starting to focus more on the South Pole, which is where we expect to send humans. That one, I know, is a very intriguing spot for the Artemis program. Like you're saying, to send humans, we got these permanently shadowed dark regions that are extremely interesting. And that'll be, I guess, the, some of the first uh, payloads, some of the first scientific instruments being sent to that region. Very, very exciting. Um, 
Now, you mentioned some mast and space systems in 2022, 2023. Camille, you mentioned a, a large number of scientific instruments that astrobotic and intuitive machines could choose from, and you used the term like a buffet when, when coming to select some of these instruments. Does that mean that a lot of these were, uh, I guess, already ready to go? And then from there, it was just a matter of the... I guess, respective companies choosing which ones that they wanted to send to these regions that Chris talked about. That's exactly right. I mean, we wanted to jumpstart the program, Mm -hmm. the Lunar Exploration Program, and there wasn't enough time to go through the process of soliciting instruments, which in in and of itself could take a year. And then once you get the instruments, then you, you know, you release a task order, which is another set of months process. And so in order to just jumpstart, as I said, the project, we allowed, you know, we pulled these instruments off the shelf around NASA centers and offered it up to the companies to select which ones were capable with their lander. And these are a combination of of spectrometers, magnetometers, a combination of images and cameras. So um, all of these, again very much of interest to the science community to help them, again, start answering some of these questions that they have about the surface of the moon and really the subsurface of the moon, right? Mm-hmm. There was there was one that kind of uh, piqued my interest a little bit when you were talking about some of these rovers. The, the one that's going a little bit later, it's something called Viper. Uh, that one sounded a little bit interesting because I, I believe it's a rover. What's, what's Viper all about? Right. So Viper is a much bigger mission. The, the the original two awards to astrobotic and true machines were both around 50 kilograms. Viper is going to be closer to 500 kilograms, so an order of magnitude larger. Wow. And that is a NASA-built rover. And we're building that inside the agency, actually here at Johnson Space Center. It'll be hosting instruments that come from across the agency, and the biggest one is a drill. So it's going to go into permanently shadowed regions, which you can't really land in. Those are difficult places to land. You know, so you're going to land in some place where you have sunlight and a little clearer area to land in. And then the rover will drive the instruments down into a permanently shadowed region, drill into the ground to help us understand what kind of volatiles, essentially water and gases, might be buried or mixed into the lunar soil. And Viper will allow us to gather data about those kinds of materials, which might be fundamental towards enabling a long-term presence on the moon because it might enable, might show us where we can find water and oxygen and things that we desperately need for human habitation. That's a big mission and a big engineering challenge, too. I mean, I can't imagine um, the difficulty of designing a rover that is going to drive into a permanently shadowed region. That's a, that's a very intense environment for, for any system, really, to, to, to operate in. Yeah, they're, they're very, very cold. Permanently shadow regions can be as low as 40 degrees Kelvin, which is, a, if I remember right, something like minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Not an easy yeah, task. challenging environment. Yeah. Now, uh, let's go through, I guess we don't have to go through all of them, but just, just a few of the interesting things that we're looking at because I love talking about science on the podcast, and there's, there's a lot of science coming up in the very near future. Let's start with astrobotic. Camille, I'll go over to you. And uh, let's investigate just some of the instruments on the astrobotic lander that's going to be at, uh, I think it's Lacus Mortis. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but some mm-hmm. of the instruments going there. 
that's correct. You you pronounce it correctly. Oh, good. Um, so there is an instrument called LET, the Linear Energy Transfer Spectrometer, that's going to measure the lunar radiation environment. Um, there is another instrument called M-SOLO, the Mass Spectrometer Observing Lunar Operations, and that will identify the weight of the volatiles that are uh, something akin to what Chris said, um, except not at the South Pole, but where they're going, which is a mid-latitude region of the Earth, of the moon. Um, another one is the neutron spectrometer system, which is indications of water ice near the lunar surface. So that's just a sample of the three of the uh, several instrument suite that Astrobotic will be taking with them. That's incredible. Now, this is uh, a very exciting time because this will be among the first two landers to go to the surface of the moon in quite some time. And I know scientists have been eager. It sounds like they have a number of instruments that, Camille, as you described, are sort of off the shelf. Uh, they're, they're pretty much ready to go, but they've just been waiting for this ride. So it's got to be a pretty exciting time coming up here in the near future. It's a very exciting time for them. As you said, you know, we had not had a focus on the moon for quite a while, right? We were focused on um, the International Space Station and focused on going to an asteroid and, and, and ultimately always our holy grail, right, going to, the, going to Mars. And so the moon wasn't quite a priority. And so scientists now with this mission are just, you know, chomping at the bit. Our lunar scientists are so excited and so energized and um, really, you know, looking forward to future missions. Um, SMD had uh, submitted uh, what we call an RFI request for information to the science community. And, and they got over 200 responses in terms of potential instruments that could be selected for transport missions. So there's a lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm in the community around the, these missions. Oh, that's very exciting. Now, now, Chris, before we go on to some of the future stuff, I did want to investigate just a few items on the Intuitive Machines lander, see what they're going to be taking to this, uh, this dark spot on the moon. Intuitive Machines is going to take a number of other instruments. Um, one's a good example of additional science. Um, it's called WOLSIS. It, it's a low-frequency radio observatory, smaller scale, on the moon that helps us explore what kind of signals we can get from looking at photoelectrons. But we're also doing not just science, and the science, of course, is very critical of what we're doing, but we're also doing technology demonstrations. So let me talk a little about a couple of experiments that are flying on intuitive machines that help us prepare for future human missions. One is called uh, the Lunar Node 1 Navigation Demonstration, or LN1. It's uh, something about the size of a CubeSat, a relatively small box, that allows us to demonstrate how autonomous navigation would work. These are the kinds of systems we want to use with the human systems when we take them. Flying them on clips in a smaller lander originally gives us a chance to test those technologies and learn how to make them work properly. There's also a camera system called Scouts, which will be looking at, it'll be taking images, capturing video of the plume. As the lander comes down and the engine's firing to slow it down right before the landing, 
we kick up a whole bunch of dust, dust and rocks and the plume from the engine interacting with the surface um, terrain. And we want to know more about how those plumes disperse the, few, uh, the, the soil, disperse rocks, and whether they could impact our ability to, to land larger landers. So scouts will give us a chance to capture some data about that that we can factor into designing the human landers when we build them. Oh, that is very interesting. This is, I guess, Camille, you, you know, one of the questions I had earlier was, you know, why not just ha- do this during the human missions? It sounds like there's a lot of technologies here that are part of the CLIPS pro- uh, initiative that can actually be applied to the human mission. That's correct. Um, the rover, for example, right? We, we know we're going to have rovers um, for the human mission. Um, so that also is a learning experience for us. Um, we are going to eventually have pre-positioned um, in hardware for the human missions, um, communication systems, technology demonstrations, um, maybe um, some habitats uh, that, you know, could potentially be flying on clips that are pre-positioned um, and they're in time for when we have astronauts on the surface. Very interesting. Now, now, Chris, there's... It sounds like there's just been so much progress in, in such a short amount of time. When you talked about in the 2017-2018 time frame, coming up with the idea for CLIPS, and here we are in 2020, and we already have we have landers for all the way through 2023 at this point to uh, to to be putting some very important scientific uh, instruments and technology demonstrations, all this great stuff on the moon. There's so much progress already, but I'm, I'm sure there's more. What, what can we look forward to in the future here for, for some upcoming task orders and initiatives? Sure. So we will we'll actually award two more task orders before the end of the fall. Um, one will be another drill. It's a version of the drill we're taking on Viper, but we're going to take it to the moon early so we can test it and make sure we understand how the drill works in lunar conditions. That will help us prepare for the very important Viper mission. Uh, that's called Task Order Prime 1. And then Camille's working on a task order which takes the remainder of the instruments we got out of the science mission directorate call last summer to the South Pole, along with some technology demonstrations from the science, uh, Space Technology Mission Directorate to gather more data about conditions in the lunar pole. We expect to award both of those by the end of this fall, end of this calendar year. Then we'll hit a sequence of roughly two task order awards per year um, guided by the Science Mission Directorate. And then every other year or so, we expect to see other task orders based on either technology demonstrations or preparations for human flights. And maybe Camille can tell us a little about what kinds of things we think those will do. SMDs are sponsoring CLIPS, right? They provide most of the funding for the CLIPS contracts. But this is a, a mechanism for cross-mission directorate participation. So as Chris said, the Space Technology Mission Directorate, they are already uh, showing interest in flying technology demonstrations. And Prime 1, as Chris just mentioned, is one of those. Um, they will have some future technologies that they are developing that they would want to send on CLIPS missions. And then the human exploration mission in, in preparation for Artemis, you know, and sustainable human exploration, they will be sending 
they will be interested in, in sending some larger payloads, um, perhaps um, some habitat-type hardware, again, pre-positioning for human exploration. And so there's a lot of interest across the agency, right, in this project and in this contract mechanism um, because it just really is flexible, it's agile, and it allows, it facilitates um, instruments, everything below human-scaled um, hardware to be transported to the moon. That is incredibly exciting. Chris, you, you talked about um, you know, possibly two task orders being awarded per year. I can, I can see this really ramping up here, um, especially when you're talking about how it folds into Artemis and how um, you know, Camille described as, as jump-starting an economy. Uh, now now there's your, I guess you're trying to build a larger customer base on the moon. Can you tell me about, uh, Chris, your vision for what the 2020s are going to look like, maybe, maybe sometime even past this, uh, you know, these first uh, four task orders that you've awarded, how you imagine business on the moon uh, through CLIPS? Sure. So, you know, a lot of this is, you know, polishing a crystal ball, obviously. And the one thing we tell everyone to remember is that none of the vendors have demonstrated they can successfully land on the moon yet. That's an important first step. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're very pleased with the progress we've seen from the, the vendors we've awarded task orders to so far. But they'll have to show they can, they can successfully you know, get you to the moon and finish that last step, which is pretty critical of landing softly and safely. But we believe once they've done that, um, there will be interest in science communities, not just within NASA, but outside of NASA as well. Um, we already know that Astrobotic is flying uh, 12 instruments or 12 payloads beyond, beyond the, the 10 or 11 that NASA is giving them, and they represent a wide variety of interests. You mentioned the Europeans. There's a couple of European payloads that Astrobotic has contracted to fly. There are some um, public interest payloads that Astrobotic is working with media companies and others to, to work on. So the opportunity to show off a growing economy, um, which has to be enabled by both commercial vendor success and, and some evidence that, that there is interest in things happening. But we're, we're pretty confident if the price gets low enough, and we're, we're very pleased with the prices we're seeing so far, universities might choose to fly a payload as part of a standard university grant process. Um, there are, just like we're seeing in low-Earth orbit, there are companies whose commercial interests long-term might be facilitated by enabling things to happen on the moon. If Viper, for example, is able to demonstrate that there is water buried in the regolith of the soil on the, on the lunar surface, particularly in the southern pole regions, uh, companies might be interested in getting there to, to mine the water and then sell it back to NASA or other people visiting the moon. So I think there's a framework for a commercial industry that can emerge. It will depend an awful lot on, again, early success. Um, if the first two landers will both you know, crash on the moon, that, that will have a very chilling effect on the economy. But assuming they're successful, and we think right now that they're, they're moving in the right direction, we, I think you'll see a lot of potential interest show not just in this country but in other countries that don't necessarily have the full-strength full space program the United States would have. 
What an exciting time. This is unbelievable. Now, now, Camille, adding, adding on to this, Chris described so well the, uh, this economy that we're trying to build for, for, for deep space. What just, you know, this is a very futuristic concept here, but I know NASA has goals of returning sustainably to the moon, as you described through the Artemis program, and then having that inform Mars. So how does, how does CLIPS do that for the agency's overall broader goals? So we often say that we are not in the critical path of Artemis, right, or um, that 2024 landing, but we enable the Artemis program by being the, the trailblazers, as you will, to, you know, to the surface. Um, so that is one way. We, we are also demonstrating really an one of the most innovative private-public partnerships that NASA has ever had. You know, we've never done business like this with commercial companies before, where we don't actually help with the development of their hardware. We're just buying a service, as we talked about earlier. And so there's a lot there that other aspects of Artemis could learn from this, this particular business model. Um, one other thing I would like to say, though, that we talked a lot about instruments to the surface of the moon, and that's primarily the, the objective of CLIPS. But we're also looking at can our commercial companies provide capability to just orbit the lunar orbit, right? Maybe their CubeSats or other type of uh, communication satellites that need to be put in orbit around the moon that our commercial companies can take either transport to orbit solely or transport to orbit on the way to the surface. And so that is another thing you will see coming up in the very near future. See, Camille, when you say very near future, I just get chills because <laughs> I, I just can't believe what a time we're in, you know, this is, this is, uh, we're talking about the next decade here on, on just the landscape of the moon changing entirely. So just talking to you both today, I could just say confidently that this is, this has been a very, very exciting thing to talk about. Chris and Camille, to both of you, I really appreciate your time going through clips today and, and just what a fascinating concept and, and uh, project that you're both working on. I appreciate all you do. And I appreciate your time for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Gary. It's a blast working on this project, and we're excited to always share it with the world. So thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Colbert and Camila Lane about the CLIPS effort commercial lunar payload services as much as I did. Uh, we have a few other podcasts here on Houston. We have a podcast that you can listen to all about the moon. Just go to nasa.gov slash podcast. Click on us at Houston. We have a podcast. Check out some of our episodes in no particular order. We also have a lot of other podcasts across the whole agency that you can tune into.
If you want to learn more about CLIPS, uh, you can go to nasa.gov and search in Commercial Lunar Payload Services. There's also a website for it, nasa.gov slash content slash commercial dash lunar dash payload dash services. Uh, you can talk to us at Houston Wave a Podcast on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. And make sure to mention it's for us at Houston Wave a Podcast. This episode was recorded on July 24th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and Rachel Kraft. Thanks again to Chris Colbert and Camila Lane for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of the show. We'll be back next week.